uh, chapter 24. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to um, ask God to direct us in understanding what it means for us, okay? Thank you. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. So put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that it is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has a king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give someone between me and you. Give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go safe? So many... So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, 
and that you will not destroy my name out of, the father, out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the reading of your word and the privilege to do that, as well as, Lord, the fact that we have your word. May we now allow you to have your way with us, Lord. Would your Holy Spirit um, take this word and, Lord, implant it into our hearts, Lord. May he have freedom to challenge us, to convict us, to mold us and to shape us to be the kind of followers of your son Jesus Christ that you have called us to be. May I, as your messenger, simply be your mouthpiece. Would your word, Lord, just become alive to us today as we see how beautiful and how impactful it is, not just as a story, but Lord, as a means by feeding um, your children. Lord, allow us now, by your strength, uh, to be changed and affected by the preaching of your word. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. First Samuel is all about God's hand of providence in raising up his king to rule over Israel. And he moves when Israel is at his lowest point. And by means of reminder, I would point you to the last verse in the book of Judges. And this is what it says, chapter 21 Verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was a really bleak time for Israel. In fact, this you might want to say was the lowest point in Israel's history, or you might want to say one of many really, really low points. But out of that desperation, out of that uh, obscurity and, 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 and difficulty, God is moving, and he's moving in the hearts and in the lives of a couple of ladies. The book of Ruth is a story about Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, and the impact of the story of Ruth ends up theologically for us in the last couple of verses of the book of Ruth because we find that God, out of obscurity, births a child, and that child ends up being the father in the lineage, ultimately, of David. And so this, this book of Ruth tells us a little bit about how God is at work in, in, in accomplishing his purposes to bring about David. And then as we begin in 1 Samuel, we find this lady by the name of Hannah. And she ultimately, by God's strength, gives birth to a son, and his name is Samuel, and he would be the prophet. And a prophet that Israel desperately needed because the temple and the worship in Israel at that time uh, was in a horrible state. And Samuel was raised up by God, and as he raised him up, Samuel was able to restore the word of God back to Israel. And he ended up having a, a, a very um, active ministry of the word throughout Israel. That doesn't mean that all Israel was bowing to the instructions of the word of God, but there was the word of God that was present. But God ultimately was going to raise up his king for Israel, but the people in Israel were not patient with God. In fact, they rejected God as their king, and instead they wanted to have their own king just like the other nations. And so in chapter 8, we find this discussion that God has with 
Israel and with Samuel, and the people are saying, we want a king like the other nations. And Samuel's saying, I don't want to give you that king. And God tells Samuel, listen, give them that king. That's what they want. And so God gives them Saul. And of course, Saul is head and shoulders above the people. He is the king they want to lead them into battle. But the time comes, as we know, chapter 17, when there is a battle There is the champion of the Philistines by the name of Goliath there, and Saul is not willing to go out and fight him. And a little before that, um, some things happened with Saul, and ultimately Saul, we recognize, was a failed king and a king that rebelled against the Lord, wouldn't take his word and counsel seriously. And so God removed um, his presence or the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life from him and He put it on David, and David then is anointed as king. And I'm just giving you kind of big picture highlights of the story. Ultimately, the chosen individual that will be the king for Israel, God's choice, is David. And when we get to this particular section of scripture, we find David and Saul. Saul is still the king, and David is the anointed king, but... David has not actually had the crown placed on his head. There is time between David's anointing and David's actual ascension to the throne, and David has to wait, and he does. And so there is a tension going on because all this time Saul is pursuing David. Saul is enraged. He's maddened by fear and all sorts of uh, of feelings against David. He wants to kill him. He wants to put him to death. As we continue on in the story, David then is ushered in in a kind of unusual way because here is, here is this, this champion Goliath standing and taunting the people of Israel, the army of Israel, and Saul, and David just shows up to bring some pizza for his brothers. Bread and cheese, right? Foundation, right? And when he gets there, he sees Goliath out there taunting, and everyone's kind of like going out there, and they're just beating their chest, but nothing's actually happening. And David is offended. And he's saying, why is someone not going out there? And eventually, by virtue of an honor to God, he says, listen, I'm going to go out there. And he goes to Saul and says, listen, I'm willing to do this, because these people are not honoring God. They're not standing up for their God. So he goes out there, and he defeats Goliath. Not in a way that you would think. But God uses that circumstance to bring David to the forefront of the people of Israel. He becomes one of their heroes. Okay, And here's Saul the king. David had been anointed king. He wasn't actually the king yet. But the people now recognize David as this incredible champion, his hero. He goes off into battle. He defeats the Philistines. Along with Saul, Saul is there too. But you remember the refrain... Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So there's this popularity thing that was going on, and Saul is now enraged. All this is building up. And what's interesting is that that, that Saul's pursuit of David is, is clearly irrational, but fueled with jealousy, fear, and rebellion against God and his word. And that comes out in the text in a number of different ways, because David is loved by the people. But he's also loved by his wife, Michael, who happens to be Saul's what? Daughter. And he is loved by Saul's son, whose name is Jonathan. In fact, the only person that doesn't seem to love Saul in the story 
is, uh, sorry, love David in the story is Saul and his henchmen. There's a real tension going on here. In fact, if you think of, <clears throat> if you think of the, the, the Romans chapter 1, in that chapter, the Apostle Paul teaches us that when people deny God, they don't do it because they lack evidence. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. But rather than allow the evidence to point to God, they take that truth and suppress it. Although they know God, they do not honor God or give him thanks. Why? Because in rejecting God's truth, his evidence, they are futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. And that's really what's happening with Saul here. The people's king here, he has rejected and rebelled against the God of Israel. And so God, through the prophet Samuel, told Saul that he was raising up another king from among his brothers, but Saul still would not repent. And not only that, Saul goes mad with hatred and envy and fear and wants to destroy David, who he sees as his enemy. So as we think about the setting of our text, we come to chapter 24, and we'll see that David is an outlaw pursued by mad Saul and his men to a cave in the rocky oasis of Engedi. God's providence has been at work. And maybe the end of David's running is near. That's kind of like the, the, the picture we get. So we begin at verse 1, and we see this, this encounter. We see this setting. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he went out to war against the Philistines. He was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat rocks. Now here's David with 600 outcast men. They're kind of a rabble group. Some of them may be skillful warriors. But then there's Saul with 3,000 what? Chosen men. I mean, you get the picture here, right? David and his rabble men, 600 of them. Saul and his chosen men, 3,000 of them. That's a five to one advantage. How is God going to get David out of this place of difficulty? Now, the question might be, can God get David out of this place of difficulty? Well, the answer, of course, is certainly he can. This is not the first time one of God's chosen servants has been in a place of difficulty where the odds are against them, right? In our text today, David must learn an important lesson. Here's the ultimate lesson that he's going to learn. Here's the, the, the overriding theme or lesson that we're going to consider today. He must learn reverence or learn to reverence God as he leans on his providence. And so what we're going to learn this morning is, is to, to reverence God as we lean on his providence. We'll flesh that out. We'll think through that a little bit. And it's going to come in a number of forms. But God is at work accomplishing his purposes in the life of David. David, remember, is anointed king but hasn't ascended the throne yet. There is a, there's a plan of God going on here. And David is having to wait. And while he is waiting and while he's going through this difficulty and suffering and trial, he is learning how to reverence God as he leans on God's providence. Now, friends, this is not a new lesson, but an ongoing lesson for all of God's children. 
We find ourselves repeatedly asking the question, God, why do you have to go through, or why do we have to go through so much difficulty as we wait on your providence? I'm sure you've asked that question a number of times. Maybe you haven't said it out loud, but you've thought it in your mind. God, if you're an all-powerful God, why can't we just end this struggle right now and usher in the new kingdom? Or you might say, God, just, just take us home. Be done. Ever had that feeling before? Yeah? Usually happens after election or something like that, right? I mean, th- th- these are feelings that we have. This is be honest, okay? Or God, why do we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death in order to get to the banquet table of heaven? I mean, you're a good God. You're an all-powerful God. You love your children. You say that. Why do we have to go through all this? Yet even with those questions, we must nestle ourselves into the arms of God's providence and seek to reverence him in all we do as we wait for his will to unfold. Just nestling in to his providence. And, And while you're doing that, reverencing him, honoring him, seek to glorify him with your life as you wait for the providence to unfold. So let's begin now with the first thing that we see here, wrestling with God's providence. Wrestling with God's providence. I've been to En Anyone here been to En I've been there before. And it's, it is a beautiful oasis along the shoreline, but also overlooking the Dead Sea. I mean, it's just, it's like desert and kind of these, these really dry rocks, caves and all that kind of stuff all around that area. But there is this oasis and you can walk up and there's pool. You walk up more, there's another pool. You walk up more, there's another pool and there's caves all around. And then you also see these mountain goats. They're not big ones. They're kind of little guys. And then you see these groundhogs. They're everywhere. So this place is full of life in the middle of a desert. So we read in verse 3, and he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, friends, that's not the kind of detail that we usually find as we read a story in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is usually very, very careful about talking about things like that in a very, very proper way, okay? Um, so this is, this is not the kind of detail you normally share in the story. Now, certainly, it's the kind of stuff that has to happen, Right? These are people just like us. But it's here, and and if the the narrator is bringing it to our attention, it must be significant. It must be something important to, to say about the story. So as we read on, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And just think about it, 600 guys sitting in a cave. Now they may have been spread out in different caves, but they're tucked in the back of this cave, And here comes Saul into the cave to relieve himself. Of all the caves in the region of En Gedi for Saul to enter, it had to be this one. Except, who's in control of all these details? Okay. Now the king is alone. He is caught with his pants down, literally. And he is vulnerable. And you can hear the whispering in this story deep in the darkness of the cave. What? Is that who I think it is? Can you, can you believe it's Saul and he's alone? This has to be God's doing. This, this can't be a coincidence. 
What fortune. What, we're, we're saved. The king has walked into our hands. Let's go kill him. Verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day for which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They're saying, David, you know that Saul is your enemy, and the Lord has promised you that one day you will be Israel's king. This is the day the Lord has made. You know, go kill him and rejoice in it, right? This is God's doing. Here is your opportunity to take down the regime of Saul and to begin your rightful reign as king, just as God has promised you. What will David do? And David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David is not willing to kill Saul, but he is willing to play with him a bit, to poke him at his failing reign, to mock and ridicule him. This cutting off of this robe is not just a, a demonstration of David's stealth, but it's also a demonstration, or it has symbolic uh, significance. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 27 and 28. Just notice what it says here and you can just think about the implications of what David is doing. This is Samuel now speaking to Saul. Chapter 15 verse 27. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, let the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. I mean, this, him going off and cutting off this, this rope has a symbolic reference. It's, it's pointing back to it. There's a sense in which that, you know, he may not be killing him, but he sure is now confronting him with this reality. And that's why we read the following, verse 5, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David realized that what seemed appropriate in the moment was really a result of a sinful heart. He misread God's providence as freedom to act sinfully, to mock and show up Saul, to insult him regarding his failure as king. But his heart struck with conviction from his conscience for what he had done. He had insulted the Lord's anointed. Verse six, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David had acted in a sinful way against Saul. He had acted with the counsel and the encouragement of his men. He had listened to their opportunistic voices and although he had not followed through with killing Saul, he knew that even what he had done dishonored the Lord. Now I think we can relate to Saul. Not to Saul, I mean to David. I think we can relate to what, what, what he's thinking and why he acted the way he did. We've all probably responded to a confrontational email or a post on Facebook rather quickly and rather rashly and said some things, maybe in a tone, that once we hit click, five minutes later, we're like, ugh. 
we felt justified when we wrote it. We felt like we were standing up for what was right. But then just a couple minutes later, our conscience is smitten with what we have said. The damage is done. Or maybe one of our family members is upset about something and so we quickly deflect what they're saying by hurling back at them one of their sinful struggles and personal failures. We somehow think that it helps us to look better if we can point out their faults but it only causes more grief and sadness. And that might actually be the feeling that you had at that moment, but afterwards you're like, ah, that was really, that was really bad of me. That was wrong, that was sinful of me. Or if you're a parent, you've probably come to the defense of your child when another parent has made you aware of some incident that happened at school, in the playground, or in the classroom, and your precious little treasure is just being picked on, and you're not willing to put up with it, and... Don't those parents know that they have a child who has problems? Don't those parents know that they need to up their parenting? How dare they even contact me or talk to me about my child? So you respond in anger and you blindly defend your child, but after the meeting with that other parent, you you just realize that you were just a total jerk. You ever been there? So this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. This is, this, this is the kind of stuff David is going through. He's like, yeah, yeah, he's, he's motivated by his men. They're talking about, this is an opportunity. And he goes out there, and he doesn't go fully through with it, but he does enough. That is a demonstration of his sinful heart at that point in time, and he is consumed in his conscience about what he has done. So David felt so strongly about his sinful actions against Saul that he had to persuade his men. Notice what he says. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And so Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Literally, that word persuaded means David tore apart his men. You get this, there's this language in this chapter having to do with cutting off and tearing apart Continues on through the chapter. You'll see it. But David is standing in front of his men. He's saying, listen, you are not going to touch him. And the idea of tearing apart is there may have been some guys that were ready to do it if David wasn't willing to do it. And he is tearing them apart because he's like, no, you're not going to do that. This man is the Lord's anointed. Now, in this passage then, so far, what we're seeing is a wrestling match taking place between two options, two means by which often we seek to discern the will of God. The first one would be attempting to read God's providence, the circumstances, the experiences, the opportunities before us, or resting on God's word and on one's own conscience. Let's just think through this. The first thing we're going to look at is the idea of reading God's providence. And as we'll see, it often is too ambiguous to discern God's will from God's providence. This is when we try and discern God's word, well, God's will based on circumstances that happen. So we can all understand how, and we can relate to David's men in this situation. I mean, here we are in this cave. We're all hiding from Saul, and Saul happens to walk in. And remember, he's the one that's been trying to kill us. He's the one that's been walking all over the the wilderness, chasing us all over the place. And we're moving from, from one 
cave to another cave to another cave. In fact, in chapter 23, they almost got them. So clearly, God is saying to us, by looking at the circumstances, by looking at the orchestration of the events, and by the fact that here is Saul by himself in this cave. Well, he's not by himself because we're all here, right? God clearly wants us to deal with him. Really? Are you sure? How do you know? Now, don't we often, many times, discern God's will by looking at providence? I think we do. I want you to think through this a little bit. Here's a way that we can, we can discern God's will based on God's providence. Um, imagine that uh, in your home you have uh, this desire for a brand new refrigerator. You have a refrigerator, it's good, but it doesn't have all the bells and whistles. And you know, you're just like, oh, I really love a refrigerator. You know, one of those ones that has like a thing where you can put the, you know, put the glass up and the water comes out. It's just right there. I mean, all you have to do is, and it's right there. And then the ice, it's right there. And some of you are saying, don't even go that route because they break all the time, right? But that's a whole other story. But you're just like, oh man, it'd be great to have something like that. But you know what? You're cash trapped. You know you are. And so what happens is that you get a flyer in the newspaper and it's from Best Buy. And Best Buy says, we're having a special sale. It is the grand spectacular sale. And it's just for you. And one of the things that's gonna be on sale the most is a refrigerator. And you read it, you're like, hmm, I've been thinking about a refrigerator. So you go and you, I'm talking about a guy, you go and you talk to your wife, and your wife is like, yeah, we could really use a refrigerator. She's probably the one that uses it the most, but in the back of her mind, she's thinking, and how are we gonna pay for this thing? But it's on sale. Just think about how much money you're going to, what? Save. We've all been duped, haven't we? <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, you know, she's like, no, I'm just, you know, okay, that's nice. Yeah, we need a refrigerator. It'd be good to, you know, we pray about it. Maybe something will happen. And so the next day, he goes to work. He goes to work, and gets on his computer, and his job requires him to go on the internet. And while he's on the internet, guess what? There are adverts that come up on the internet. Best Buy, having a sale, and there's a picture of a refrigerator. Man, is God saying something to me? And then, and then you, you go home at the end of the day, and you, before you go in the house, you go to the mailbox, you pull out the mail. And, you know, this is the usual thing, there's the Kohl's catalog that promises the 30% but never offers, right? Um, th then, you have, then you have that, you know, that letter from some person who's running for office, right? And behind that is this, this kind of big, square, bright flyer from Best Buy. And it's saying, I'm here again. And it's a beautiful picture of a refrigerator there. And of course, the very next thing behind that is the statement from your bank, right? 
Now, my point in sharing all this is that oftentimes we will make a decision about buying a refrigerator not on God's word and by virtue of his truth, by virtue of saying, well, God must be saying something to me by virtue of all these different things that are going on. And David listened to the interpretation of God's providence, and it was a faulty interpretation. And our interpretation of God's providence can also be faulty because we could say it's clear God wants us to purchase this refrigerator. But then your lovely wife reminds you, but we don't have any money. And you say, well, that's okay because this is God's will. You see the trouble we get ourselves in. Because the real reality, the biblical truth should be, you know what, don't place yourself in debt. You know, you've got a decent refrigerator. You don't have to have this better one. There, there are biblical principles of stewardship that flow out of this, but providence can scream at us with bells and whistles saying, you know what, this is what God is saying, when that's not what God is saying. In fact, that's the world of advertising that's trying to get you to buy a product. But we can see it as God speaking to us. You get the picture there? Okay. So, verse 7. David persuaded his men that these words did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So we're reading God's providence. And then, not only that, there's there's the word of God. By the way, I just want to go back here. They claim to have actually quoted, this is what God said. Just actually go back to that verse. Verse four. This is what the man are saying to David. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give, you your, give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. There's no record of that anywhere in the story. Just, just a word of caution here. We can actually make the word of God say something because we want something so bad or because we think it supports what we think is God's will for our lives, right? What David knew was that God was going to replace Saul with him, but he didn't know when, he didn't know how, and he certainly knew that his job wasn't to kill Saul in order to get there. Now, there's not only reading God's providence, but there's also reading, resting on God's word and our own conscience. The word of God and conscience work together, friends. Let's think about the word of God first. David knew that he had no right to take the law into his own hands. He certainly had no right to execute the uh, the man the Lord had himself anointed to be the king of Israel. But the word of God spoke to the situation and and, and trumped David's thinking on the matter and his men's misreading of God's providence. And David makes the point twice. Look at verse six and then verse 10. He said to his men, verse six, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 10, behold, this day, Your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you 
today into my hand in the cave. He's speaking now to Saul. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So David understood that God was the one who needed to orchestrate this. He wasn't saying, David, you figure this out. God was the one that was going to, to deal with Saul in his own time, in his own way. So the simple implication is this. If we know from the word of God that a certain thing is right or wrong, no amount of providence, however striking, will change the certainty of God's wisdom and counsel. If God says, listen, young people, do not pursue, if you're a child of God, do not pursue a relationship with an unbeliever because that would, that would dishonor God, it's settled. No amount of providence would change that. Let me give a picture here. Just think of a, a young lady just graduated from college, went to a Christian college, and she has some relationship with guys in Christian college that didn't work out. Now she's working at this new company as a receptionist. She likes her job, but there's this guy who's an unbeliever, but working in this job, seems like a nice guy. He starts to kind of interact with her and greet her every day. And every once in a while during the day, he'll kind of walk by and he'll say something. And she's kind of liking the attention that she's getting. But then he'll write some notes as he may drop off some things, just some clerical things that she needs to deal with and say, hey, listen, I hope you're doing okay at this new job. And then maybe a couple days later, he'll write another note and say, hey, listen, if you need any help with anything, you just let me know. And she knows he's an unbeliever, but she knows that, she, that he's giving her attention. And she likes the attention that she's getting, and she finds herself thinking about him. And she finds herself then beginning to question whether or not she should think about him or even allow him to pursue her. And this guy seems like a nice guy, and I've dated these guys before in college, and they all kind of seem kind of squirrely and immature and that kind of stuff, but this guy seems like he's a mature guy. Seems like he's got his act together. God must have brought me here to meet this guy. You see how the providence of God then can be a, be a counsel to you that actually could take you away from doing what God wants you to do? And she, rather than standing firm on what she knows to be true in Scripture, she knows that God, in his word, says, listen, don't marry an unbeliever. She knows that's what her parents have taught her. In fact, that's been her standard for years, but she's willing to capitulate a little bit because it seems like the providence of God is repackaging that. And friends, here's the caution. If the word of God says that something is to be forbidden, no amount of God's providence, however striking, will change the certainty of God's wisdom and counsel. The providence of God, well, your interpretation of the providence of God does not change the truth of God's word. And yet sometimes it screams at you to do something contrary to God's word as if this is God speaking. And David gets caught up in that. Now, there's also the matter of the conscience. David, having cut off the corner of Saul's robe, was struck with a guilty conscience. And when your guilty conscience is bothering you, you know exactly what that is. You know that feeling that you're going through. Some have said, your conscience is like that, 
that uh, light on your dashboard. Now today they have dials and that kind of stuff. We used to, I used to drive a Pontiac T1000. Anyone know what that is? I mean, it's an, you know what a Chevette is? It's a huge old thing, right? All right, a Chevette. And, and there were no dials on it at all, except for the gas gauge, I think that was it, right? Everything else was like a dummy light. Well, you know, and you probably have some cars like this too. The, 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 those, those lights are on all the time. So my oil light was on all the time. And you know, I would check the oil, but then my oil light is on. And this car was, was such a special car that, that I literally had to pull off to the side of the road to let cars pass me because I could only go so fast, right? But this, this light was on. Now what can you do with that dashboard light? You can cover it up with tape. All right? Um, you can ignore it. Um, some people actually go under the dashboard and just take the bulb out. But that light is there for a reason. It's there to alert you. One of the problems with those dummy lights, you just don't know what it's alerting you to, right? The check engine light is on. What does that mean? You know, and then you go to the, you go to the dealership and they say, oh, you didn't screw in your, you know, your, your, your um, gas cap properly. So the next time the thing goes on, and of course, you know, the engine's about to blow up, you're thinking, oh, it's just my gas cap, right? <laughs> right? That's, that's the reality. It's there for a reason. And that your conscience, when it starts to sing, when it starts to make noise, when the lights go off, it's there to say, hey, there's something out of place here. There's something wrong. And if we're God's children and we've been allowing the word of God to fashion us, it's the word of God then that begins to shape our conscience so that when we move outside of the parameters of our conscience, the bells go off, Right? And that's what happened with David here. He was convinced of one truth by virtue of his men and misreading providence, but as he did it, as he's walking away, as he's thinking about it, he is struck in his heart. His guilty conscience is, is now just going bells and whistles all over the place in his heart. And so he knows that he has, he has violated God's truth. So here's the big picture principle for us to remember. God's will must be achieved in God's way. God's will must be achieved in God's way. I'm going to say it a little differently here. The end that God ordains must be reached by the means that God approves. The end that God ordains must be reached by the means that God approves. God has a will, his providence in David's life. David, you are going to be the king that I have chosen to rule Israel. But you're not going to be crowned yet. So the question now is, in order for David to be what God said he's going to be, is David going to allow God to dictate how that happens? Or is David then going to say, well, this is what he says I'm going to be, so I'm going to dictate how that happens. God's will must be achieved in God's way or the end that God ordains must be reached by the means that God approves. And that is exactly what Christ understood when he was tested by Satan. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain. This is Matthew 4, 8 and 9. And, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now the reality is, 
That was what Jesus was going to get anyway. But what the devil was wanting Jesus to do was just to take the blessing and the right without going through the cross. The Godhead had a means to accomplish its will. And its means was not to bow down to Satan. Its means was to go to a cross. And if Jesus had had submitted to the devil at that point in time, he wouldn't have gone to the cross and we would all be miserable today. But he knew better. And how did he know better? He knew better, and it shows us by virtue of what Jesus says, right? Each time the temptation comes, how does does Jesus confront it? With Scripture. It's the Word of God. And he paints a very clear example for us to say, listen, be careful with viewing the will of God, the providence of God, without scripture, allow scripture then to dictate and to fashion, to shape your interpretation of that providence. So that's the wrestling with God's providence. That's a wrestling match, isn't it? For all of us. Now we spent a lot of time here purposely. This is where the action is. This is all happening in the cave. We're gonna move now outside the cave and what we're gonna find there are two discourses, one from from, um, David and the other one from Saul. I'm going to spend less time here, but um, this all builds out of what happened in the cave. All right, so here's now what I'm calling appealing to God's justice. When the story moves outside of the cave, it is David who voluntarily puts himself in a dangerous and vulnerable position. Saul had placed himself in a very vulnerable position inside the cave, but now David having his heart now consumed with guilt and a, and a conscience, steps outside the cave in a vulnerable way, but he, he, he approaches Saul with respect. He uses the right words. He assumes the right posture. Let's just read that, verse 8. And afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called for Saul, my lord the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David appeals his innocence. He says, why do you listen to the counsel of those around you that say, I seek your harm? By the way, who had just given David counsel? (laughs) And what did David do with that counsel? Well, he listened a bit, but then he realized it was wrong. And so he's challenging even Saul now who is listening to this council around him. And, and David goes, you know, basically goes on and says, what have I done? If I wanted to kill you, I could have done that today. You walked into the cave and some, someone told me to kill you, but I didn't. I told them, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And then David pulls out the piece of the robe that he had just cut from Saul's robe and shows it to him. I just imagine the thoughts that are going on in Saul's mind at that moment. He obviously had no clue that David had done that, right? Verse 11. Again, notice the words. See, my father. Interesting. See the corner of your robe in my hand. 
For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. What David held in his hand was a symbol of the kingdom, the kingdom that was being ripped or cut from Saul. But it was also a symbol of David's innocence, his faithfulness and his kindness toward David. And David declares his innocence by appealing now to God's justice. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. In other words, you may have done some things that deserve vengeance, but I am choosing to leave that with God. And I will not lift a hand to hurt you. And to make his point even more emphatic, David points to an ancient proverb. Interesting that in this era they're pointing to an ancient proverb, right? Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. So although David is deflecting his actions with this proverb, this proverb may have also been a way to show Saul who the offender really was. David's saying, I'm not a wicked person, and so there's no wickedness coming out of me. But notice what he says next. After whom has the Lord, or has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? That is, on the dog? Where, where, does, this, where does this chapter begin? It begins with Saul going out and defeating the Philistines. But now Saul is consumed with chasing after a dog or even a, a flea. I mean, who, who am I compared to this nation of warriors? Again, to what does David appeal? The justice of God, verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So the reason David can wait to ascend to the throne of Israel is because he is confident in the justice of God. God will take care of the vengeance. David's case against Saul will not go unnoticed by God, but David will not grasp God's gift of kingship before it's time. Now I'm sure that there's a wrestling match to do that, but he's saying, I'm fighting myself to say, I'm going to trust in God's timing rather than grasp at this. So instead, he'll wait patiently for God to work out his plan. So not only are we to be reverencing God by wrestling with his providence, we're to be reverencing God by waiting on God's providence by appealing to his justice. And friends, this is no small principle for us to apply. There have been many times in my life, in ministry, or other circumstances when I have been the brunt of significant wrongdoing, deliberate and purposeful sin, and I'm ashamed to say that I have found myself in the quietness of my heart as my head is on the pillow thinking of ways that I can take revenge. That's not unique. I think that's a normal struggle when you have been the brunt of sin in that way. And then as I come up with a plan, my heart is convicted and I feel ugly and dirty and I have 
to wrestle my heart to the place where I'm saying with David, may the Lord judge and give sentence, but my hand will not exercise vengeance. You ever been there? Some of you have been the brunt of sinful behavior. For some of you, your marriage has been destroyed. For some of you, your family has been turned upside down. And still others have had difficult dealings with people at work or or maybe even neighbors. And in all of those situations, it's easy to let your flesh do your talking, isn't it? And you might even feel justified because look at what they did to me. Rather than wait on God to exercise his vengeance according to his timetable. See, David was living out Romans 12, 17 and following And God is calling us to do the same. Listen to what it says. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. Just hang on to that thought. Even Jesus, during his earthly ministry, had the power to exercise vengeance and judgment on those who mocked and insulted him. But he committed himself to the care of his father and the timing of God's redemptive plan. Now friends, that's that's what God is calling us to. He's we're appealing to God's justice. Right? You, you saw those verses, I'm sure. Now let's move to what I'm calling realizing God's faithfulness. These are all ways that we are seeking to reverence God as we lean into his providence. By wrestling with his providence, by going to the word and allowing our conscience to be fashioned and shaped by the word. Secondly, by, um, <clears throat> what did I say here? By appealing to, to God's justice, by, by seeing God as the one who exercises this justice, not us. And finally here, by realizing God's faithfulness. Look at verse 16. Now that the the, the new dialogue takes place, and it's Saul that speaks up. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? Did you catch that? David called him my father. Saul now calls him my son. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. I mean, you're, just, you're stunned. I mean, you're actually waiting for Saul, if you haven't read the story, you're waiting for Saul to say, that's nice, David, I'm going to kill you now. I've been running around the world in this, chasing you down. Here you are, you're about to die. What's your last word? But that's not what happens here. Saul responds by listening to what David says, and he calls him my son, and he lifted up his voice and wept. Now think about this. It doesn't say in the text, but I think it's, it's, it's at least something that is very likely, if not very possible, and that is that Saul is saying these things now, not just in the context of David, but he has his men there also. There may be Saul's soldiers who are hearing this conversation. By the way, this is not a weeping of repentance. This is a weeping from a man who is tormented with life, abandoned by God, but seeing the darkness of his demise unfold before his eyes, and that will take shape here. But notice three things. First of all, what Saul admits. What Saul admits. 
He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well, or the same word there is good with me, in that you have uh, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord repay you with what? Good for what you have done to me this day. This goes back to that Romans passage, doesn't it? We are to be people who are doing good. It may take a while, but even those who are opposed to God's children take notice of their good works. So our message of good news is reinforced by our lives of good works. Good news and good works go hand in hand. I'm not saying good works for the purpose of gaining favor with Christ. We're talking about good works that are the result of Christ living in you. And you're doing your good works in front of people, but the word of God and good works go hand in hand. Kindness and gentleness and patience, forgiveness and honesty. What Saul is saying here is huge about the character of David. Yeah, every time I've thrown a spear at you, you've actually been kind. Every time I've chased you through a house, my daughter's house, um, you've actually been good. You have dealt well with me. It tells us a little bit about the character of David in the midst of this whole conflict. Not only what he admits, but now also what he knows. And this, friends, is the surprise of the text. This is, the, this is what rises up out of this text theologically and in this story that is powerful. What does Saul know? Verse 20, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Friends, that is a surprising and shocking statement. This is one of the key statements in the book of 1 Samuel as God's story of the unfolding and the the rising up of David to be his king. In fact, what we can say here, um, we'll hold on to that thought. We've moved from this this statement in Judges where there was no king in Israel and everyone that was was right in his own eyes to you have rejected me as, as your king, that's God speaking to Israel, to obey their voice and make them a king to I have provided for myself a king in David, that's chapter 16 and verse one, to now 1 Samuel 24, 20, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. What is God doing through the mouth of Saul? He is reinforcing his promise to David that he is going to do what he said he's going to do. As David is experiencing the providence of God, he is also realizing once again the faithfulness of God to actually keep his promises. From the person who has been pursuing him to kill him, he hears the truth once again. What Saul knows is also reinforced by what Saul asks. He says, verse 21, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. David swore this to Saul. In other words, David, have mercy on me. I mean, this, what's interesting here is that 
they leave and they go their separate ways. David is smart enough to say, okay, Saul's in a good mood right now. That might change really fast because he's had experience with him. But God is saying things through Saul that are just reinforcing God's purposes. Now, what do we make of all this? God has remained faithful to do what God said he would do with David. God, through the mouth of Saul, David's enemy, once again reinforces his promise to David. He had told David through Samuel. He had told David uh, through Jonathan. And this is what he said, uh, what Jonathan said. This is chapter 23, verse 17. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. But now it's reinforced through the mouth of Saul. This is powerful stuff, friends. The statement is where the ascent of David and the descent of Saul intersect in the story of 1 Samuel. Here's Saul. He's king of Israel. Here's David. He is anointed king, but not yet crowned king. Saul has been descending. David has been ascending. And at this particular point in chapter 24, you find this crisscross going on it's going to be, as we move ahead here, David that's going to continue to rise and Saul that's going to continue to, to go down. God will bring about his king in his timing, in his own way. Let me just bring some thoughts to a close here. All throughout this passage, what we have seen is David learning to exercise divine restraint. He wouldn't kill the Lord's anointed. Even what he did, he realized was sinful and he, he is feeling bad properly about what he has done. But his restraint is rooted in God's sovereignty that is guided by his word. So David used restraint in facing Saul. Jesus used restraint in facing all who mocked and scorned him. And we benefit from that restraint, the gospel. And God calls us to be a people who exercise a divine restraint. And this divine restraint is called mercy. God has been merciful to us. David is being merciful to Saul. Jesus has been merciful to us. We are called to be people of mercy. I encourage you to read the book of Jude. The answer for those who are in the context of false teaching is to work on your own relationship with God, but the action is, is fleshed out in the context of mercy. God will accomplish his purposes in his way at his time. Our job is to lean on him with reverence. Wrestle with the providence as we see it through the lens of the word of God. Attribute our, our innocence based on his justice that he is the one that will accomplish the vengeance. And then be reminded over and over again of God's faithfulness to us. And friends, we are. Will we... Give acknowledgement to that. Lord, help us today to see your beautiful hand of providence. Lord, we want to see that. We want to see it in all its glory. We want to attribute to you what you are doing in the lives of your people. And yet at the same time, Lord, there, there, 
so many ways in which we can read that providence and come to wrong conclusions because we are not fashioning our understanding of that through the word of God that you've given us. Lord, help us today to see the beauty and the majesty of your word. Lord, I thank you that not only we have that reinforced in the story that we've been looking at, but Lord, even in the presence of our friends with Wycliffe Translators. As we gather here this morning on our laps, we have the word of God. Lord, what a privilege that is. May we not set it aside as we seek to discern your will, as we seek to understand your providence, as we seek to understand vengeance, as we seek to, to comprehend and hold on to your faithfulness. Lord, may your word be what is um, just driving and guiding and, and, and shaping our thoughts as we seek to reverence you in the midst of all that you're doing in our lives. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen.